Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Over to you, Kirsten. Ian, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm delighted to be here. Also a little nervous because it's early in the project that I'm presenting. Oh, well, actually, as Oti knows, because we just had a copy, it's quite late in the project, but we thought we would have results by now, and that's one of the things I'll talk a little bit about, um, is the problems of data gathering in this project and the problems of then drawing conclusions from them. So the paper is from the Funding Transitional Justice Project, uh, which, as Ian says, is funded by the UK government's Global Challenges Research Fund, and it's a project on the Gender Justice and Security Hub. It's a co-authored paper, um, and it's a co-project um, with uh, multiple responsibilities, so I work on it with Eric Beeblehouse-Brown from the University uh, of Arkansas at Little Rock, and Claire Wilmot, who is at the London School of Economics. So any faults are theirs, anything good is mine, obviously. Um, what the project aims to do as a whole, rather than the paper, <clears throat> and I have got some slides, I just haven't got a lot of them, so I'll tell you when I change one. Um, so what the project aims to do uh, is to produce the field's most comprehensive data set of funding of transitional justice. This was a ridiculous ambition, as it turns out, when we find out what kind of data is available. But why are we interested in funding? We're interested in funding because donors shape the form of transitional justice that materialises in societies um, that have experienced so societies that have experienced periods of mass violence and repression. Um, often donors come in and they shape the response to the peace and to the justice initiatives afterwards. Um, <clears throat> And levels of funding also influence the type of justice that can be pursued after conflict uh, and the quality of transitional justice mechanisms. So what I'm going to do today is present some conceptual work and our early thoughts on three cases. Um, I've talked first about a turn towards transformation in discussions of transitional justice and more broadly, um, and the failure of genuine transformation that we're seeing in some of the uh, cases. Uh, looking at the cases of Sierra Leone, Colombia, uh, and the Trust Fund for Victims at the International Criminal Court. And what we see, and as I say, a very early findings is a romanticization of the, um, in the more mainstream discourse uh, of the roots of the idea of transformation, an elision in practice of the more challenging political implications of transformation. Um, and both of these take away from the power of the idea and let those with structural power off the hook. So the notion of transformation um, we see in three slide um, in three different uh, normative agendas: in justice, reparation, and development. So I'll spend a bit of time talking about these three before moving on to talking about the three cases. So transformative justice is often seen as a kind of third wave of transitional justice that comes after a focus on retributive justice uh, when the field began and moved through restorative justice. Now there's lots. There's lots of problems with that characterisation, um, but I think it's probably fair to say that it is more, it's a later addition to the field. I think the characterisation of retributive, then restorative, then transformative tells a story of progress which can't be sustained. And also when you look at early um, transitional justice efforts, they're often quite restorative, but they're not noticed in the literature as much because they're not sponsored uh, by more powerful states and donors. So... Um, it speaks to the way that actors have come to dominate the field, but the development of transformative justice um, is more recent, and it's, more, it's particularly interesting, I think, because of the way it links in with other kinds of normative claims and agendas. So transformative justice concerned the ways in which social structures and institutions enable harms and how those structures and institutions might be transformed to prevent such harms in future. So much less concerned about individual actors, even political leaders, who are responsible for harm and much more with a kind of structural environment. 
The calls for transitional justice to be transformative can be traced to Louise Arbour's arguments that transitional justice, I'm quoting here, transitional justice must have the ambition to assist the transformation of oppressed societies into free ones by addressing the injustices of the past through measures that will procure an equitable future. So a very ambitious agenda. Wendy Lamborn has worked on this as well. Um, and talks about transformative justice as being long-term sustainable processes embedded in society and the adoption of psychosocial, political and economic as well as legal perspectives on justice. Um, Now, um, I don't want to get into the debates today about the different conceptions of transformative justice, although I'm very happy to in in the question and answer session, but there are broadly two camps, I think, One that sees the heart of transformative justice as being about localising justice and therefore paying very um, particular attention to culture, to local processes um, and so on. And another within the, there's actually three but I'll come to the third at the end, another within the feminist literature that really looks at the emancipatory potential of transformative justice. Um, And they don't always meet because it may be that local processes do not um, prioritise um, gender equality, for instance. And so they, it, there isn't a settled understanding of transformative justice. But where we're particularly interested through the um, Gender Justice and Security Hub is on um, gender on gender justice um, and on the ways in which uh, feminist literature has developed this idea of transformative justice. So you see in quite a lot of the feminist work on transitional justice um, a critique of the narrow focus on civil and political rights in transitional justice work, which tends to exclude the experiences of many women. So so transitional justice processes um, in which gender harms are examined often focus uh, particularly on conflict-related rape and sexual and gender-based violence um, and are constructed around what Kesselaar calls patriarchal conceptions of what constitutes harm. So they, um, they may see harm to women's bodies as being significant, um, but not think more broadly about social inequalities, about gender power dynamics, about private sphere harms, and so on. Um, and most of the harms and injustices that women face tend to be ignored through conflict and post-conflict tend to be ignored within prevailing transitional justice uh, models um, if you simply sort of insert gender into them. It's not taking as seriously as we would want to see the the ways that gender power structures um, uh, lead to different forms of harm through conflict through people with different gender identities. So legalistic institutions in particular are often predisposed to ignore women's experiences um, and gender biases are inherent in these kind of dominant discourses of nationalism and war and peace. Uh, The binaries that uh, that, is, that suggests that you move from war to peace uh, and that many of the injustices that led to conflict might disappear in peacetime. So a lot of this feminist work looks at the ways in which justice processes can be more broadly transformative um, of societies and address the root causes of conflict, which in many ways are going to, or in many situations, perhaps all situations, uh, are going to include um, different forms of social inequalities which aren't often captured within traditional transitional justice mechanisms. Um, so recent, the sort of most, some of the most recent feminist research invokes um, uh, Greedy and Robin's notion of transformative justice, uh, which uh, the quote out there is from Ketzler's is dismantling the master's house uh, by changing structural inequalities between men and women and between the powerful and the disenfranchised. Um, and I think there is 
as I say, I'm not going to get into the debate. I think this is going to be quite fruitful in the next few years around what transformative justice really is. But there is, I think, a, um, a reasonably uh, settled view that transformative justice must involve some form of gender justice, that ignoring um, gender inequalities is not going to lead to um, genuine transformation. <clears throat> the extent to which that's prioritised is going to be different between different sets of work. So there's justice as transformation. There's a first set of transformations there, and that, um, I would argue, at least we focus on including uh, ideas of gender justice. But fundamental to transformative justice, and actually to all forms of internationalised justice, is money. Um, so transformation will involve a, a significant redistribution of resources. So the second type of transformation that we look at conceptually is reparation as transformation. As transitional justice has moved towards including uh, restorative um, goals, we see an increasing centering of victims and calls for reparation, um, including reparations mandates at many of the internationalised courts and tribunals. Um, but actually lots and lots of domestic um, justice initiatives include reparations as being something very important. This is something that gets kind of written out in the early, more heavily internationalised efforts at justice um, and written down as if economic justice is somehow less noble than seeking justice for political and civil rights uh, abuses. The traditional aim of reparations is to place the victim back in the position they would have been if the harm hadn't occurred. And academics and practitioners have both criticised this traditional approach <clears throat> excuse me, uh, because it doesn't address the kind of disparities, socioeconomic disparities, unequal power status, that led to the crimes occurring in the first place. So simply putting back somebody back to the unequal status they had prior to a crime occurring um, isn't really justice on this argument. <clears throat> And so we've seen work on transformative reparations that argues that we shouldn't be putting marginalised victims back into positions of marginalisation, um, but thinking about transforming the position they're in in part through participation. So this is another of the things that comes out through feminist work. Uh, the critical importance of inclusion of victims um, through justice processes um, and a desire, as I say, to transform the positions of victims post the justice processes. And this idea you see within um, academic and policy-making circles, it's been endorsed by the United Nations, the International Criminal Courts, um, at, at various regional and domestic jurisdictions. So there's a lot of talk about transformation and transformative reparation, but it's unclear what transformation really means in a lot of this work. Uh, so for Simeon Greedy, transformative reparations, um, which should work alongside uh, complementary mechanisms, um, can help to enable, I think this is a quote I put up here, yeah, enable the transformation of groups, communities and regions out of these generational cycles of poverty, discrimination um, and exclusion in order to make conflict less likely in the future. So in order to make the conflict and post-conflict cycle less likely to occur and also as a matter of, of justice. Um, <clears throat> But what counts as, as transformation isn't always, uh, say, particularly well defined. Um, for some, you could say that the, uh, the kind of broad, meaningful participation and consultation um, with women and girls, with other marginalised groups, can be transformative in itself. Um, and those, as I know, we're talking about recently, as has come out in your work, um, <clears throat> the consultation, and in fact, as you and I were talking about, the consultation is different than deliberation. Consultation does not always include actually being included in decision-making, um, but can, uh, yeah, it can be something that's merely for show rather than being any deeply transformative. 
So we've got this sort of discourse around transformative reparations that feels very new and feels very exciting. <clears throat> but actually, when you scratch it, it's not always entirely clear what's meant, how you would judge whether or not um, reparations were transformative. And the more transformative the claims become, the more they get towards development. So the last transformation that I think is uh, a way in which you see transformative language occurring with a normative um, discourse at the moment is around development. Now there's a caveat here, um, transformation, um, uh, development programs can be used in theory for transformation but also to prevent uh, transformative justice and so the example of Sri Lanka is a very good one here, the uh, Rajapaksa government um, invested very heavily in development partly in order to avoid having to do post-conflict justice processes, so you, you, there's an attempt and you see it in other places as well to buy off Populations give up on your claims for justice, and we'll give you a fantastic highway, and we'll you know increase your ability to earn a decent wage, and so on. Um, <clears throat> so, I'm, the last thing I'm suggesting is that development is always transformative. Um, but we see within international development discourse an excitement around the idea of transformation. Um, uh, what does the UN mean by transformation? Um, there's no mention of transformation in the goals or indicators uh, of the sustainable development goals, or at least of um, uh, the ones around gender and justice. Um, but the agenda itself is called transforming our world. Um, and Sachs has written, um, uh, there's a big piece in Nature on six transformations to achieve the sustainable development goals, which kind of claims at least to be cutting edge work on the SDGs. Um, and the language is all about transformation, but when you look at what is going to be transformed, it's, it's a deeply not radical. Um, so just as an example, you know, the, um, the introduction to the pieces, achieving the SDGs will require deep structural changes across all sectors in society, which suggests a big disruptive agenda will be necessary to achieve these goals. The emphasis turns out to be on governments, on the actions of governments, and on science. And so you often see from people usually who aren't scientists, the science will save us, technology will save us somehow. Um, so there are actual agendas for science, and I've got some examples here, which looking at the time I won't say much about, but you know, uh, just give one example around education. Um, the education systems are um, supposed to be uh, transformed through um, expanding and, um, uh, and developing the systems, including anti-discrimination measures, improved labour standards, um, and so on. But the agents involved are all governments. So what looks to be transformative turns out to be something governments can do. The very governments who are responsible for those education systems not being transformed in the first place. So there's no mention of justice and the rights that people might have as rights of justice. Um, no civil society, uh, despite the authors, at least in this piece, talking about so civil society being needed for implementation. There's no sense that civil society will be fundamentally involved in the critique of the systems and therefore the transformation of the systems. Um, and no mention of the agency of anyone who would be assisted by this transformation. So we're still actually, despite transformative discourse, in the world of charitable outsiders, charitable wealthy outsiders, funding programs to assist those who have failed to transform themselves. So move on then um, to talk a little bit about donor funding um, uh, and then about their cases. So I'm just going to talk very briefly about um, what we tried to find when we tried to follow the money. Um, one of the questions that motivates this part of the project is do donors uh, fund transformative projects. Um, 
or is transform this transformation just the kind of latest bud buzzword to describe what's all, always been funded, um, or projects that don't challenge any underlying power structures? Um, so we have an enormous quantity of data that doesn't actually tell us very much at all. And it's been a fascinating part of this project. This is fascinating, meaning incredibly frustrating part of the project that living in a world in which there's now a giant amount of data, we're supposedly living in a world in which policy is data-driven, in which we have public access to data, unprecedented level of freedom and volume of data. At least the data in this field, it's virtually impossible to work with, at least um, with a normal size research team. So you can get data on the way that governments fund aid programs. Um, they usually don't break down into academic categories, which is kind of fine. You'd expect that, that they wouldn't just have a category that says transitional justice that we could easily access. Um, but they change over years anyway. So even if you get to know how Canada describes the way that it's funding various forms of social justice programs and you know, anything international, um, they often change with governments. They may change over time. They simply change as the bureaucrats change. They're not comparable across country. But there's lots of information available. So we first went to donor countries to gather information just on a relatively limited number of fairly high-profile development donors um, to the US, UK, um, Germany, uh, Canada, Switzerland, um, and found masses and masses and masses, thousands of pieces of data over years, none of which turns out to be really comparable across country or across time in a way that's robust. Um, so then we say, okay, well, let's look at some of our cases. So Sierra Leone and, um, and Colombia, which are the two cases I'll talk about in a minute. We thought, let's look at the institutions in Sierra Leone and Colombia and see if we can get a bit more data. So let's go to the Special Court for Sierra Leone um, and find out who funded the Special Court for Sierra Leone and try and piece things together that way. And you end up with a not an ideal picture of justice efforts that way because... Um, you miss those things that the donors aren't funding. So where there's lots of community efforts, where there's NGO uh, and civil society uh, initiatives that are being funded but aren't big picture stuff that might be coming through your donor data, they're not coming through by looking at the transitional justice institutions themselves because you'd have to know, and it's possible, of course, to know a case in sufficient detail. You know all of the different initiatives and trace them. But it's quite hard even to get that level of data. So it's not perfect. But there is some data that can be available that way. So there's something, there's no, there is a point in you being here, there's something on these cases on money. <laughs> but but the, the um, field's most comprehensive data set, in fact it may be the field's most comprehensive data set, you just can't do anything with it. It's very difficult to actually do anything across, across states, across time, across either donor or receipt states. Um, so yes, we have thousands of bits of data um, and only very tentative sets of conclusions. Um, which I think is kind of important sometimes to say. It's a bit like kind of publishing the null hypothesis. There's years of work that's gone into finding that it's very difficult to draw any findings in this field. Um, and it matters partly because I think there is a belief, at least there wasn't me and I may just be particularly naive, that this data would be usable data rather than just available data. And it's, um, we're happy to talk again in Q&A about the kinds of data sets that's available. The SDGs are tracked by a big data set called Aid Data, um, which is phenomenally well-funded and does publish some stuff on patterns. But it's, again, you really look at where the data comes from. It may be very strong in some fields. So, for instance, 
I don't know, and, this is, and I don't know this to be true, but I'm giving an example. Um, it may be that the data they have on water security is particularly good because donors might label what they give towards water security as water security, and you may be able to trace that over time, and it may be comparable across donors. Um, but in the transitional justice field, and actually in SDG 16, which is about peace, justice, and strong institutions, that encompasses a whole lot of stuff that isn't always what justice people would describe as being justice work. It may be funding the police, for instance, which you know, we could have conversations about whether funding um, security services is part of a justice agenda. Um, and gender work may be about gender and something, and so it may be categorised in the and column rather than so if it's gender and poverty, it may be categorised in the, in the goal of poverty, and it may not really be gender work anyway. Um, it may be that everyone knows now that you're going to be more likely to get money if you say that there's something to do with gender in a development project, so you stick it in there, but it's not really something that's driving the project. So, again, masses of money available, um, and uh, masses of data available, but not data that's wildly useful. So let me talk... Ooh, I was going to... Is that clock fast? Yeah, it is, yeah, it's it? fast. <laughs> it's five minutes. Five minutes fast. Um, so let me say something about the, um, the three cases. I might focus on two of them. Let's see if I have time. So I'm going to talk for another 10 minutes or so. Um, so we start with um, the case of Sierra Leone, um, which is an early case of, uh, it's a, of international interest in transitional justice, um, which has a, a slightly more localised flavour. Um, so transitional justice in Sierra Leone is regarded as being very heavily donor-driven. It's very heavily driven by outside interests. Um, the institution that received by far the most funding in the transitional justice program in Sierra Leone was the Special Court for Sierra Leone, which was the uh, first hybrid court. It was uh, um, established by an agreement between the UN um, and, the, uh, and the government of Sierra Leone, although neither had control over it. Uh, Sierra Leone has had very little control of any of the justice and development aid that came to Sierra Leone uh, post-conflict. Um, local civil society organisations have very few pathways to impact um, into, in transitional justice. They were very active around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, and around the Special Court, um, but they didn't have a great deal of pathways to impact. It was a very retributive programme for the most part, um, and efforts at genuine transformation were prevented by the government and the donors. So an example of where priorities lay um, which is fairly counter to the rhetoric around here, um, is the way that funding was split between the retributive and reparative arms of justice. So special court cost a total of around $250 million, was funded through voluntary contributions um, and via the, the UN as, um, as emergency measure when their contributions fell short. The reparations programme in Sierra Leone was also funded with voluntary contributions and it managed to collect $8.4 million versus $250 million for the court. And that $8.4 million was to assist more than 32,000 registered war victims. Um, there was rumours when I was um, in Sierra Leone, but I've never been able to substantiate them, that the administration of the programme cost more than the programme distributed in reparation money, and it wouldn't be entirely surprising, although I think in the end they did generate enough that, that what was distributed was probably more than the administration. As the programme in Sierra Leone is fairly um, innovative in terms of gendered harms, the transitional, the um, thinking about transformation being something which is um, 
going to be bound up with gender. Transformative justice, by the way, is not something that's talked about in this um, in this period, in the period in which um, the uh, special court was operating in the early 2000s. It may have been somewhere already in a literature, but it's not something that's being talked about by the practitioners um, who are carrying out the transitional justice programme. So then this is a kind of, this is the, um, the first case, and the reason I'm looking at Sierra Leone and then later at Columbia is to see if we see change over time after the transformative justice agenda um, comes to the fore. So we wouldn't expect to see um, a, a great deal of transformation here, and in fact we don't. Um, but the TRC is, it was mandated um, to pay special attention to victims of sexual and gender-based violence, and it did attempt to reach out to local women's groups that was hindered by the lack of funding. Um, the special court is relatively innovative as far as um, sexual and gender-based violence is concerned. Prosecutes forced marriage for the first time, sexual slavery uh, as crimes against humanity. The, the focus in terms of gender is very clearly on sexual violence here. So the transitional justice program um, in... Uh, Sierra Leone, um, so I've kind of started on this slide already. Um, the transitional justice program in Sierra Leone um, did little to transform the root causes of the conflict or of Sierra Leonean society more broadly. Um, it's seen by some as being uh, a very successful example of post-conflict recovery. Um, so you see uh, peaceful transfers of power, you see um, economic growth, which is pretty robust for the region happening in Sierra Leone. Um, but the economic causes of conflict um, rooted in Sierra Leone's colonial history, of course, as with so many of these conflicts, um, and in the, um, the more contemporary forms that that took, so huge government corruption prior to the war, massive levels of, of youth unemployment, um, but you get a criminal court that can't prosecute for economic crimes, it can't prosecute for corruption. Um, the TRC attempted to hold economic actors accountable to some extent, um, but not, uh, not in a way that was, that was felt by the economic actors. Um, and so the, the economic and social abuses um, uh, that occur in, um, in oppressive regimes were sidelined, and, and Hugo van der Meer talks about this, um, that often these are abuses that are the underlying reason for the conflict over political power in the first place, which leads to the conflict, the, um, the violent conflict, um, are, not, uh, are not addressed within the, uh, the transitional justice programme. Um, and Elizabeth Hoffman, in writing about the Sierra Leonean case, um, notes that, and I'm quoting, despite millions of dollars spent on these proceedings, neither the Special Court nor the Truth and Reconciliation Commission succeeded in fundamentally changing the daily lives of Sierra Leoneans. So what happens between these, between the two cases of Sierra Leone and then transitional justice in Colombia? Uh, you get the discourse of transformative justice arise. Um, you, we move from the Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals, which see much greater agency um, for the states in receipt of aid, see states as being um, uh, appropriate um, agents for holding the money and agents of change. Um, and you see an apparent commitment to transformation through the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda is developed, which looks to move beyond the protection of women um, and towards uh, women being uh, agents of change themselves. Um, and rhetorically, donors seem to get the message in this period that a gender-sensitive approach and a transformative approach to trans transitional justice uh, is critical. And then we get to the uh, transitional justice program in Colombia. Um, 
and local priorities do appear to be more important. So in thinking about how is this, how, is the, how have ideas of transformation and ideas of expanding justice beyond a, a fairly narrow focus on retribution, um, how do they appear in Colombia? Um, and I'm thinking particularly around the 2016 um, comprehensive system um, rather than the, I've listed there some of the earlier um, transitional justice processes and, and the Colombians uh, are active in uh, in justice processes all the way through the conflict. Um, but as you, certainly as you get to 2016, local priorities do appear to be more important. Uh, there was a UN-supported public consultation in Colombia prior to the 2016 comprehensive system. Local power is also evident in the way that money is distributed in the Colombian system. So the UN has a post-conflict multi-party trust, multi-partner, sorry, trust fund, which is a strategic alliance between the Colombian government, the UN, and the international community, uh, which works to implement priorities defined by the Colombian government. So we, it's still the government is the agent of change here, but the government in Colombia has significantly more input than the Sierra Leonean government did. And there's a Sustainable Columbia Fund, which is a partnership between the government of Columbia and the Inter-American Development Bank. And the form of justice is considerably more reparative than retributive uh, versus Sierra Leone. Um, I'm going to skip through some of this. I'm very happy to come back to some of the details um, in Q&A, but I want to just take a couple of minutes in a minute to... Um, uh, to conclude, so it, it does look like um, on the surface it's a more transformative program in a bunch of different ways. It's much more progressive in terms of gender as well in Colombia. Gender equality and women's rights are in the peace agreement and in the transitional justice program, which include a focus on social welfare, education, and development. I've also kind of moved to this slide too, um, and that's. Um, even the earlier, uh, so the, um, the Victim and Land Restitution Law in 2011 um, establishes prefer preferential treatment for women uh, seeking restitution um, who've been expelled from their land and specific reparations for women and girls survivors of sexual violence. However, and just to summarise on the Columbia case, um, a sense of the reasons in which for which the Columbia trans Transitional Justice Programme is more transformative are Colombian reasons. The, um, and they're twofold. One is extremely active uh, women's civil society throughout Colombia, throughout the regions of Colombia, which have worked for years on gender justice. And the social justice agenda of the FARC. Um, so the FARC were particularly interested, for instance, in providing universal education and supporting development programs in previous, uh, previously FARC-held territories. So rather than this being a general understanding around donors that transitional justice should be more transformative, actually it looks like the transformative nature, as such as it was of this, or as such as it is of the Colombian program, is largely driven by the character of the Colombian actors um, and the character of the piece. And it's also not such a happy story if we look at results. So like the Sierra Leonean reparations program, the Colombian transitional justice program um, is faltering around reparations and it's faltering around gender goals. They're both underfunded and underimplemented. Um, but clearly there's another stage of research to work out why that is, but it's, it's pretty stark um, in terms of which bits of the justice program seem to be working. Um, there's also very high levels of attacks still on human rights defenders in Colombia. There's impunity again for most of the corporate and external actors involved in the conflict. And the contemporary process here, as in Sierra Leone, show that the legacies of the, of the past which um, underline the conflict are still there. 
So I'm going to skip. I've got something on the trust fund for um, victims, but I'm, I think I'm not going to talk about that. And again, I'm happy to come back to that, um, of the way that the ICC uh, funds this. And, the, and the, the conclusions are basically the same, that um, there's lots of talk in the ICC structure about um, uh, particularly sort of forms of restorative or imperative justice, but that get towards transformation, including in the latest judgment in the Antiganda case, which um, uh, suggests that there could that reparations can be transformative, but the way in which, in fact, I will just flip back to this slide, so the way in which um, uh, reparations and victim support is funded within the ICC, what those lines show, um, they show the funding for the trust fund as a percentage of the overall funding of the court, so the overall funding is the bar charts with the, the left axis, and the... Um, the red line is the funding for victims, so for support for victims and for reparation for victims. Um, and the green line is the administration of the trust fund for victims. And you'll see that the green line is now higher um, than the red line. So um, the, the administration of victim support within the ICC now costs more than um, the victim support itself. And it's around 2% of the overall budget of the ICC. So in terms of how much money is going towards these, um, these very expensive goals, we're not seeing very much. So let me just say um, a couple of words in conclusion. It won't be a couple of words, but I'll say a few words in conclusion, if I may. I mean, the slide says conclusion, so you know I'm really there. <laughs> so... Um, so to this, the, this slide says conclusions, and there's a future one afterwards. Oh, right. um, <laughs> so conclusions, I've said something about the first one already. It's just really, really difficult to trace money for transitional justice. So it's very hard to see whether donors are committed to transformative projects. All I can say at the moment is we're not really seeing any evidence that they are, um, that they are committed. It's it's feasible the evidence is out there, but I would have thought something would have come up. Actually, what you see is lots of talk and not much money um, going towards goals um, that are genuinely transformative. There, is, there has been more money spent on uh, gender-sensitive transitional justice, and it is broader than just prosecutions for conflict-related sexual violence and sexual and gender-based violence. Um, but where you see transformation, it looks like there is strong domestic um, reasons for seeing that transformation, um, particularly in the Colombian case. And what we're not seeing is the, that transformative goals that undermine political systems, that might challenge state power, that might challenge the power of institutional systems, are not being funded. Um, so the, and the, the, the radical nature of a transformative agenda isn't acknowledged within donor practice, um, within international institutions. Um, so there's good reasons to think that donors won't support the most system destabilizing goals. And then the final slides around genuine transformation. So we started to read some of the other transformative justice literature. So the other transformative justice literature is around anti-black racism in the US. So lots of the movement, the sort of movement for black lives, talks about transformative justice in a very different way than the discussion of, trans of transformative justice within the TJ, the transitional justice literature. And I think there's lots here that can be mined um, for, this is a horrible way of saying it, so I don't think that one should simply mine as an academic the important work that's being done um, towards anti-black racism in the US. Sorry, that was appalling way of, of, of saying. There's a lot that can be learned from um, the work that's being done on social justice in a range of different ways. So one of the uh, things that's really key that's coming out of this literature is the importance of 
of taking action to transform yourself. So transformative justice is probably not something that donors can donate to um, and impact or, or bring about transformation. Actually, transformation is something that should be happening in those states which have enabled a system which has led to the forms of conflict that need transitional justice mechanisms afterwards, and by the agents themselves. So the, uh, we start to see this a little bit, I think, in, and there have been calls. Um, there's a special issue of the uh, International Journal for Transitional Justice on Racism and Transitional Justice that's starting to say, what are the, um, what are the links between the reasons that conflicts happen, the reason therefore you need transitional justice, and those who are in positions to donate money to those processes, and how can we start to have more critical conversations about what justice might require, but also how can we think about the ways that, um, that transformation is research in action, um, and that the people who are doing the work that's really transformative are often those who are both involved in theorising and doing. This is a really um, fascinating, I think, <clears throat> line of political theory now that's developing within the US that's looking at how do you develop political theory from activists. So you don't develop a theory outside of what transitional justice in this case would require and then seek to implement it, but learn from those um, who are doing the work as to what transformation might be. And of course this may be another reason why transformative agendas are always going to struggle because they're transformation imposed from the outside, often by those who have some history in the reasons the transformation might be required in the first place. So I think there's a really productive conversation to be had um, between some of this work on different forms of transformation in the future. But I'm now five minutes over my time, so I'm going to leave it there. Um, thank you very much for your attention, um, and I'm really looking forward. I know how many people in this room have expertise in this area, so I'm really looking forward to your comments. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.